Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 14. Romans 13, beginning in, in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is the word of the Lord. Tonight is a time for us as a church to gather and to uh, pray with one another. It's our monthly, what we call our Fresh Encounter service. And uh, this evening we'll be praying in particular for our seniors as uh, they'll be launching um, out into the world and uh, also welcoming in some uh, new members, uh, praying for them. And also if you have a particular challenge just related to where you work, the marketplace, things of that sort, uh, we'll talk a little bit about that this morning. We'd love to have you come also. We'd like to pray over you during this very important season. In many respects, um, nothing has changed. And in many respects, everything has changed. And so we wanna pray for one another and uh, wanna be the church together. And then after, we're gonna shorten the prayer time tonight so that um, after the prayer time, we're gonna have a time to talk a little bit about some of our elder discussions related to everything that's going on culturally. We've been working on the issues related to same-sex marriage for quite a while. I wanna bring you up to speed on some things. Also, give you some exhortations. Uh, you'll greatly benefit from coming tonight, so would uh, really uh, love to have you come. If there's a particular prayer item that's personal um, and you'd love to have um, some elders or staff pray for you at five o'clock in our prayer room, There'll be a couple of our staff there who would love to spend some time praying. So hope you can come tonight. I think you'll be encouraged, be blessed, and it'll be good to be able to pray together and uh, to learn together. And with that, let's ask the Lord now to help us as we study his word. Father, we come to your word today with needy hearts. We always have needy hearts, but sometimes we realize it more than others. We need a word from you today on how to think, how to live. We need hope, encouragement, we need exhortation, we, need, we even need rebuke. And so we pray that you'd use Romans 13 to that end. We thank you for your word that serves as our guide, our law, uh, the standard of what is right, what is wrong. And we pray that we'd be people of this book and that today would be just another Sunday where we learn what your word says so that we might know how to live in the world and make much of you in your name. So we pray now that you'd come, Holy Spirit, help us, teach us. Help me to say exactly what you want to be said on this text today. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. It's been a while, but the very first Sunday of this year, we started in the book of Romans, and we, Romans 8 rather, we got to Romans 8, that is called, that I called it, the summit of the book of Romans. 
And in that particular chapter, we saw some glorious things about God, about grace, about what it means for God to have set his love on us. I compared the summit of Romans 8 to the top of a place that my family was able to go to when we were in England, that being Arthur's seat. And I show you this image to remind you that from the summit, you're able to see the lay of the land. A thousand feet up on Arthur's seat, you can see all of Edinburgh, Scotland, and as you go down from Arthur's seat, it helps you to understand how the city's set up and able to understand the different lay of the land because you've seen the bigger picture. And Romans 8 is that. It's, it's been a while since we've been there, but the truths that we heard in Romans 8, they, they set our sights on how we are to live today. We heard things like, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that that mattered in January, it matters in June. If God is for us, who can be against us? It mattered and it was beautiful in January. It also matters and is beautiful in June. Romans 8 said, I am sure that neither death nor life nor Angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ, love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That mattered and was significant in January. It matters and is significant in June. The book of Romans is about righteousness. It's about the righteousness that God gives through the finished work of Jesus, and it's about a righteousness that when you understand what God has done for you in Christ, a righteousness that you then live out every day of your life. That there is a righteousness that is from him, a righteousness that is through him, and a righteousness that is to him. So Romans 8 is meant to work in Romans 13. That what we are doing is living out a vision of having no condemnation over us having a vision of if God is for us, who could be against us? And that has showed up in Romans 12 as to what it means to be a living sacrifice. Because of no condemnation, because God being for us, we can say, God, I'm yours, and I want you to change me, and I want you to lead me every day. Romans 8 matters. And what we're doing is working through Romans 12 and Romans 13 in order to understand this Christian mindset. And the more I look at these chapters, and the more I connect them to Romans chapter eight, the more convinced I am that a Christian mindset, having the mind of Christ, it changes absolutely everything. Understanding who you are, understanding what God has done for you in Christ, understanding what it means to bask in the beauty of God's grace, it becomes a lens through which you see everything else in life. Last week we saw it changes how you view government. It changes how you view authority. Your view of God, your view of the cross, your view of grace affects everything in how you view it. Jay Packer warns that if you fail to see life this way, you'll stumble. He says this, disregard the study of God and you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life blindfolded. In other words, you need the vision of Romans 8 to know how to live in Romans 12. You need the vision of Romans 8 in order to know how to live in Romans 13. Our text today is another application of what it means to be a living sacrifice, what it means to have a Christian mindset. This is the 
last message in Romans for a bit in July. We're gonna take some time with our soul care team talking about what it means to grow up in Christ. In August, we'll talk about what it means to live in an ordinary Christian way. And then September, we'll pick up Romans 14 and 15. Church, what we're called to do in this text is this. In light of what God has done for us in and through the work of Christ, we are commanded here to walk in love and to walk in the light. And there's a sense of urgency that I have with this message because we need, you need, I need, our church needs people who name the name of Christ, who will walk in love and who will walk in the light. And we need you to do that now with urgency and with boldness and with compassion, with weeping hearts and yet heavenly eyes that are set towards the coming king of glory. So walk in love. Verses eight to 10 have a beautiful and helpful summary of the Christian life. Verse eight starts with a principle And the principle sounds like this, owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So you wanna boil down the Christian life into a single statement or what do I want you to do? What does this church need you to do out in the world? Here's what this text is calling you to do. Always walk in love. Always walk in biblical love. Paul puts this in Romans 13 right after talking about how we deal with authorities. It's a little odd. He connects the word owe to what we had heard last week with pay to what is owed them. Pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed, and then he continues on, owe no one anything except to love each other. Why does he do this? I think he does this because he's trying to get to the bottom line of what the Christian life is all about. See, at the end of the day, Paul knows what you and I know, and that is life is complicated. Some of you may have wondered last week, why didn't I go into the the nuances of civil disobedience? We touched on it very briefly, but I didn't go very deep in that, and here's why. Because civil disobedience is extremely complicated. If you have an issue about whether or not you need to disobey authorities, then our elders, pastors, I'd love to talk with you, try to help you navigate our way through that. That's something that we can absolutely address. The hard part is trying to figure out how to be able to navigate those waters that applies to every single one of us. And yet, what Paul is doing here is right after talking about government, he then goes to this matter of love. Because here's the thing, no matter what your obedience or disobedience looks like, at the end of the day, the one thing that we're all called to do and the one thing we're all called to be are the kind of people who walk in love. What Paul is driving at here and what my burden is for us as a church, for you individually, is in regards to your mindset and regards to your attitude. We need a a, a biblical north star that can serve to guide us through difficult circumstances and complicated scenarios. How do we work out the principles of wisdom and discernment in the midst of our culture? Well, there's a lot of ways that you deal with that, but the one thing we have to embrace is the right mindset and the right attitude. In other words, let me state this very clearly. If you don't know who you are in Christ, 
and you're not committed to following passionately, to have a Christian mindset, and you have a chip on your shoulder with authority, you have no business talking about civil disobedience. We are called to love our neighbor as ourself. We're called to have a Christian mindset. We're called to have a Christian attitude. And then in those moments, and they are, and they will come when we have to draw a line in the sand, then you draw the line, but you draw, draw it with a weeping heart and with a long track record of following Jesus faithfully and loving people deeply. According to 13, eight, chapter 13 and verse eight, we are to owe no one anything. Paul is not here referring to living a debt-free life, like you can never have a mortgage or never have a car loan. He's not justifying greed, granted. But what he's talking about is this, that you can fulfill your obligations when you pay your taxes. You pay your taxes, you get a, a, a receipt that says you're paid. You can fulfill your obligations when it comes to revenue. You can, you can pay respects to those who deserve respect. You can honor so that you have met your obligations when it comes to honoring people. But what Paul is saying is that when it comes to a believer, you never are able to get out from the obligation to love people. You never can stop and say, I've done enough or I've loved enough. Now it's time to think about me. Paul says that we'll never be free from the obligation to love people in a way that Christ has loved us. The Christian has an obligation then to walk in love, a love that never fails. So in the midst of very complicated situations and new circumstances and nuanced practical decisions, one of the things that you need to be thinking about in the world in which you and I live is this, what does biblical love look like in this situation? I think it's important to add the word biblical to that word love, because that word love has been a bit hijacked. Biblical love is a love that balances grace and truth. It's a love that says, I care for you, and I care for you enough to tell you that that's actually wrong, you can't do that. Biblical love is the kind of love that balances compassion and acceptance and kindness with truth and grace and what is right and what is moral. Paul identifies this principle of biblical love and he wants to, to see how central it is to what it means to be a Christian. So there's, there's three reasons why this call to love and walk in love is so important. The first is this. Paul says that love is the fulfillment of the law. Verse eight, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. So essentially what Paul is saying here is this, that the law was the heart and the life of the people of God in the Old Testament. And if you wanted to know, so what does an obedient God follower do in the Old Testament? They would have said, well, they keep the law. They obey the law, they keep the precepts of, of God. So to be a follower of God meant that you kept the law. And what Paul is doing here is identifying that if you love someone as you love yourself, or if you love your neighbor as yourself, you love the person in the way that God has commanded for us to do, in effect what you do is you hit the height of obedience when it comes to being a follower of Jesus. So what does true obedience look like? What is true law keeping? What does true God-fearing actions really look like? It, it looks like love. 
In, in the same way that keeping the law was the hallmark of a true believer in the Old Testament, so now walking in love is the essence of the true, obedient Christian life. So one of the things you need to ask yourself every day and in every encounter that you have and in all the relationships around you is this constant question of what would the love of Christ require me to do in this situation? In terms of how I talk, how I act, how I respond, that being, do people around you, they know you're a follower of Jesus, do they, do they, are you marked by love? Do you truly love people? Love is the fulfillment of the law. Secondly, Paul then gets into some specific examples and identifies that love is the summary of the law. To make the point even clearer, he uses four specific commands from the Ten Commandments. Verse nine, the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment, notice that, any other commandment. So Paul says, look, the summary of anything that you could do are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So again, Paul is trying to make this very clear and very simple in order to get to the heart of what true Christianity is. That underneath the prohibition against adultery and murder and stealing and coveting is this concern that we not violate the law of love. So taking someone else's spouse, taking their life, taking their goods, desiring what they have, these are all ways of not living in love. And Paul says, any commandment is violated when you do not love your neighbor as yourself. Positively, Paul is elevating here love for neighbor as the most foundational summary of what true obedience is. Therefore, if you wanna boil down obedience to one central command, it would be this, love your neighbor as yourself. Third, we find here that acting in love is the essence of what true obedience is. So when you read verse 10, it says love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is fulfilling the law. It sounds very similar to verse eight, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, but I think there's a nuance difference. I think verse eight is looking back on love has fulfilled the law, whereas verse 10 is looking forward in effect to say that when you do what is right in regards to love, when you love, your actions fulfill the law. So love doesn't just fulfill it in the past. As you take action, as you lean into doing what's right, you're actually embracing the true heart of what it means to obey. Therefore, if a follower of Jesus wants to embrace true obedience, then we have to walk in deeds of love. So the calling and the mission of those who have a Christian mindset is to live in the world with a biblical love that's reflected not just in what we feel, but in how we talk, what we say, and what we do. There's a number of applications that I wanna drive home. First, I want you to notice that the kind of orientation that Paul has here towards this idea of love is so much more than a feeling. This is a love that's an action. In the same way that not committing adultery and not murdering and not stealing and not coveting are all actions, 
So not doing your neighbor wrong is more than just a feeling, it actually reflects in what you do. Having a Christian mindset is more than just a feeling, more than feeling loving feelings towards other people or having the right thoughts towards them. It actually involves in doing the right things and saying the right things and walking across the room and having a conversation and and providing and helping during times of needs. In doing the right things, you do them in right of the right feelings and in right of the right thinking. So again, it's connected to Romans 8. In light of all of what God has done for you in Christ, you understand who you are, you understand who Christ is, therefore you feel the right things about people, and then, and here's the key, you do the right things so that they know that you do, you do truly love them. So my question is this, do your actions fit with the definition of biblical love? Is your Christianity or your understanding of Christian love more feeling than action? Does your Christian mindset lead you to talk differently, to live differently? Are you, are you known in your relationship circles as a compassionate, kind person? Are you known as the person who truly cares for people? Is your walk with Christ about what's going on inside of you only, or is your walk with Christ about what you do with it? This is a call in this text to act. Secondly, I'm sure that there are some of you who've had really bad experiences with unloving Christians. You may be here and someone loved you enough to invite you to come to church today. And yet you have your guard up when it comes to Christianity. And I I get it, I understand it. But you need to know that by definition, Christianity is a message given to broken and sinful people. It's the reason why Christ came to die. He died for our sins, because we're broken, messed up people. And this wouldn't be a surprise to you, but even after we come to Christ, Christians are still imperfect. There's not a person in this room who's loved every person in their life perfectly. In fact, part of the burden of this passage is you're gonna walk out of here with this mantle from Romans 13, and it is not entirely possible to keep this 100% of the time. And we need God's help because our world needs Christians who will love the world as God has, and we are imperfect people. So if you're here and you've been burned by an unloving Christian, I am sorry, I get it, but you also need to know that this community of people is filled with folks who are trying the best that they can, God helping them, and not always perfect, to figure out how to live out the life of Christ. And even after coming to Jesus, God still covers our imperfections. And I hope if you're not a follower of Jesus, that actually would be encouraging to you that you could come and be broken and receive forgiveness and then not have to be perfect. Oh no, you just have to know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who is. Third, if you're a follower of Jesus, do not underestimate the importance of a life marked by biblical love, especially when some kind of opposition or persecution comes. First Peter 2.12 says this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I read that passage differently today than I did five years ago. 
Friends, this text is important, and what Peter is calling us to in that text, and what Paul is driving at in Romans 13 is this, that we need to live in such a way such that when people speak against you because of what you believe, they will also be able to balance out the reality of what you believe with the reality of how you've lived in good, godly, grace-giving, loving conduct. You can think of it like a bank account. Everything you say and do matters, and it's storing up an account. Think of it like a, a spiritual credibility bank account. And the idea is this, that you're loving people and pouring into their lives and have a spirit of graciousness, and you're, you're known as a reconciler, and, and there's a respect for authority, and you're, you're living in community, and you're, you're resolving conflicts as, as best as you can, and you're known as a person in your neighborhood and in your family and, and in the marketplace who is really trying to live out a life that's different and is ethical and is kind to people such that when the day comes when you have to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm sorry, I can't do this or participate or I can't enforce this policy or I can't because of my spiritual beliefs that people may disagree with your worldview but they can't deny that you've loved them. We don't need any more grumpy, angry Christians. We don't need any, let's fight this thing, whatever it is, sort of. You know what we need? We need people who weep over the trajectory of culture and who get their hands dirty in the needs in people's lives. We need the kind of people who will live in such a way that people who would oppose you might say this, look, I don't agree with your views. In fact, I really can't stand them, but I can't deny that you've loved me and cared for me. Paul is calling us here to owe no one anything except to love one another. So here's the deal. The way you live on Monday through Saturday really, really matters. The way you conduct yourself at work, the way you conduct yourself in culture, how you pour into people's lives, all of the grace things that you're doing them, you need to do them now, not just because they're right, you need to do them now because they are needed. Paul is calling us here to walk in love. Here's the second thing. He's also calling us to walk in light. To walk in the light. Verses 11 and 14 serve as context for what he is saying, and they also serve as an amplifier. There is a moral urgency connected to what Paul is saying here, and that is that Christians need to love consistently, and here's the other thing, we also need to live morally. Paul then goes through why we should live this way and what it looks like. Essentially, why we should live this way is, he says, because it's time. And he essentially says, wake up. We live in these kind of days, and therefore, you need to live this way. Look at verse 11. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Notice all of the references to time or time context. You know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. See all those time sort of oriented words or phrases? 
He uses this language in order to remind believers about the context in which they live. To remind us about who we are, what our mission is, and what little sliver of time that God has placed us in. To remind us of the trajectory of history. From a biblical standpoint, we live in what the Bible calls the last days. Those days began at the resurrection of Christ, and the trajectory of history is we are waiting for Christ to return. Why are we waiting for him to return? Because that's part of the story of the gospel, that Christ will return, he will bring all of those who are his to himself, his children, his people, and he will enact judgment on the sinfulness and the brokenness of the world will recreate the new heavens and the new earth, and we live in the interim between his resurrection and longing for that day to come. We live in the last days. Paul wants to remind us that these last days, these times, require a certain kind of conduct. Jesus himself in Matthew 24 said that during these days there would be wars and rumors of wars. Nations would rise against nation and there'd be famines and earthquakes and persecutions and trials of many kind. In fact, Jesus made a sober warning in Matthew 24 and verse 11 that many false prophets would arise and lead many astray and lawlessness would be increased and the love of many will grow cold. Peter warns about these days in 2 Peter when he says we are told to wait for and to hasten the coming day of the Lord. We are to wait for Jesus who will return, who will bring in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. So the, the reason that Paul talks this way is to remind the followers of Jesus that the world in which we live is not the end-all be-all, that we live in the last days and the trajectory of human history is longing, biblically, for something new that is yet to come. So we are awaiting the fulfillment of our salvation. That's why Paul says our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. In other words, we're one day closer now to Christ's return than we were yesterday. And every day that passes... Another day that's completed, it gets closer to Christ's return. Now the reason why Paul and Peter talk this way about our time is because it is very easy for us to forget where we are in history and where our lives are headed. We can become numb to the culture around us, become very accustomed to it, very attached to it, and we can forget why we are here. Simply go to your job, do your job, earn your paycheck, and repeat, 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 and forget. I'm not, I don't live for a paycheck. I'm not here just for this job. I have a mission in life. God's placed me where I am for a bigger thing than just some money and a paycheck in an American dream, that I am, I'm here for another reason. And what happens is that familiarity with this culture can actually be quite dangerous. I have had the scary privilege as a father to teach three sons how to drive vehicles. <laughs> and every stage of that learning experience is scary. The first few months are scary, but they're scary for a different reason. They just don't know what they're doing, and so you have to give them instructions about absolutely everything, and everyone is on high alert. Everyone in the car, no one's doing nothing except watching, right? All eyes are on the road, like, hey, 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 stop sign, six miles ahead, you know what I mean? So it's like, hey, everyone's awake and everyone's alert. That to me isn't the scariest season. 
The scariest season is when they become comfortable and when everyone in the car becomes comfortable. And they're traveling around and suddenly you realize because of a bad decision that was made, whew, okay, wait a minute, everybody wake up. Like everyone look and let's, let's be on alert here. And the same thing that's true of learning to drive in terms of overconfidence or becoming too comfortable is exactly the case when it comes to our engagement with culture. As we just become very numb, too comfortable. And, and the passage reminds us here of the time in which we live. That for all of the beauty and the enjoyment and the pleasurable experience and the familiarity of the world around us, we need to be reminded that the world is broken, it's deeply flawed, it's increasingly hostile, and it's in rebellion against God. It's beautiful, but it's broken. Every funeral, every natural disaster, every moral scandal reminds us that the world is not safe and that it needs to be fixed. And Paul wants us to wake up to this reality, for the time has come for you to wake from sleep. What's he talking about wake? It's a common word that he uses to refer to moral drowsiness. Wake up from being hypnotized to the attraction to the world and its system that we can become lulled to sleep by the common and soothing slide of immorality. You can fall prey to the mob mentality. Everybody else thinks this way, so why don't you? And so pretty soon you start thinking like this, and then you look back on your life and go, what was I thinking? And that was the problem you weren't thinking. Text calls us to wake up to the reality of who we are, the kind of world that we live in, and what could happen, and what will happen. In fact, one of the reasons in August that we're taking time to talk about the ordinary revolution is because I think far too many believers are looking for mountaintop experiences. Like, I just want to figure this out and everything's going to be great for the rest of my life. And the reality is that happens sometimes in small little ways, but most of the Christian life is thousands of daily decisions that are made regarding incorporating God's grace into our lives and living out an ordinary job in an ordinary world in an ordinary culture and suddenly you have an extraordinary moment to be able to speak about the name of Christ because you've built up an extraordinary resource of ordinary days. I don't want you to be an ordinary Christian, no but I want you to not be enamored with extraordinary experiences when there's ordinary grace available to you every day. So how do you make it through this world? You know how you make it? Every day you wake up, put your feet on the floor and say, God, I'm yours. Change me and lead me. And you walk into the marketplace, you raise your children, you do the job that God's called you to do in a way that makes much of him and you love people deeply and you weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice and you platform the gospel every day. A spiritual awakening happens as we ingest the word, as we pray with passion, as we live in community, memorize the words, we give generously, serve selflessly, as we mortify sin ruthlessly. What is happening is not just waking up like a major moment of awakening, but rather it's about a thousand daily decisions that you've made to follow the Lord Jesus. Tonight, after the Fresh Encounter, we're gonna talk about some landmines in our culture. The challenges around us, church, create a great opportunity to think carefully, 
a great opportunity to speak intelligently and engage wisely. There are platforms and opportunities for the gospel that are absolutely incredible if we will wake up and seize them. And if we are willing to say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and here's what I believe the Bible says. One of the things that I'm rejoicing in is the fact that there's been a space for cultural Christianity in the United States for a number of years. And the reality is that space of cultural Christianity, meaning you can be a Christian, but it doesn't really cost you a whole lot. You can be a Christian, but don't really have to tell anybody. You just kind of slip under the radar. You go to church, but there's, there's really no definitive cost. That space for living that kind of Christian life, Christian life is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And most of us are gonna be asked in the course of our lifetimes to take a stand, to draw a line and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, and I love the fact that that's what it's coming our way. I think that's wonderful, I think that's good, I think that's helpful, because cultural Christianity is actually not helpful at all. So what does Paul then call us to do? If the time is something that we need to embrace, what he calls us to do is to be different. Verse 12, the night is far gone, the day is at hand, so let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. There it is. That's what you need to do every day. Every day this week, you feed it the floor, God, today I put on the Lord Jesus, I'm gonna cast off the works of darkness, I'm gonna put on the armor of light. Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the day. So the principle is we're gonna cast off the deeds of darkness and we're gonna put on the armor of light. So not only do we need to walk in love, but we also need to walk in light, in the light, and what does that mean? It means that we need to live lives that reflect the beauty of the gospel. So let's, let me be blunt. We don't need any more grumpy Christians. We don't need any immoral Christians either. We don't need critical, angry Christians. We don't need any more hypocritical Christians. What Paul is calling us to be here is the kind of people whose lives match the mission, whose godliness matches the hope of the gospel. So how do you deal with culture? How do you wage a culture war, so to speak? What is it that God is calling us to do? It is to weep over the condition of the world and then to walk in righteousness. That's what the call is. Paul lists some sins. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in orgies and drunkenness. There's the first pair. I think he collects these into realms. There's a social realm, there's a sexual realm, and there's a relational realm. Not in orgies and drunkenness. Paul gives a, a list here of things that are the kind of actions that believers ought to flee from. He says that believers are not to be marked by mob sensuality or mob drunkenness. Instead, believers are to be controlled by the Spirit and not by sexual passions. Believers are to be controlled by the Spirit and not by the effects of too much alcohol. The idea is in the midst of a culture that's out of control or in the midst of your friends that are out of control, you ought not be a part of that. That's the point. 
because it's not just about you anymore. That's the message here. It's not just about you and your righteousness. There's actually a bigger thing that's going on here, and it's not just that individuals have to walk in love and walk in the light. It's that the entire church needs to walk in love and walk in the light. He goes on, not only in a social sense, but in a sexual sense. He says, not in sexual immorality and sensuality. What he's saying is that those who are married and those who are single should both both embrace sexual purity. Sexual purity is becoming more and more unusual. It may even feel embarrassing or maybe old school when people ask you and you tell them of your commitment to sexual and moral purity. And can I just remind you that your battle for purity is not just about you? At one level it is, it's about you, your relationship with the Lord and your relationship with your future spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or the people that you're around. But the reality is it's not just about all of those relationships. The issue relates to the gospel and the witness of the church. It relates to the witness of the church in the world, meaning that the church needs to be a sanctuary for people who are broken, a sanctuary for people who are sexually broken. Because you know what's gonna happen? Our world is gonna find out that a marriage license alone doesn't create long-term faithfulness, and there are gonna be all kinds of people who bought that message and have found out that I still brought the same level of brokenness. And my question is, what a great opportunity for the church to be a refuge for sexually broken people and say, come, because we're all broken and we've found Christ who's brought us healing at a level that even goes deeper than our sexuality. But we can't have that message if marriages are falling apart and believers are sleeping around and of all sorts of immoral behavior going on. What's the world gonna think? They're gonna look at us and go, what are you people talking about? You even got it going in your own world, and that could be very true. So this ought to be a call for us to say, you know what, if we believe this, then let's live it. If we believe it, then let's embrace it. If we believe it, let's fight for it. If we believe in it, let's protect it. And not just culturally, but personally and maritally and inside the church, let's treasure and value purity, not just because of our own righteousness, but for the sake of the witness of the church and the world. That's what Paul think is driving that. And then finally, he mentions relational sins, like quarreling and jealousy. Not only of social sins and sexual sins, but relational sins. I'm so grateful Paul puts this in here because it makes it so practical that, that Walking in love and walking in the light comes down to how we apply grace to one another in one-on-one relationships. Look, our world is filled with quarreling and fighting and backbiting and gossip. Our world is filled with jealousy and rivalry. No aspect of society is untouched by these sins and how unusual it would be to find a people called Christians assembled in a church who this is not the characteristic of their relationships. And instead, we find a people who love one another and care for each other and forgive one another and who cover things in love and don't take themselves too seriously and find a community of people who don't esteem themselves more highly than they ought to think. What Paul is doing here is saying to us, remember, your quarreling and your jealousy is not just about you. There's more at stake here than just you being offended by what somebody else did. And maybe it's time to get over it 
and realize we got a bigger mission than you not being offended. We got a bigger mission in the world here that relates to the name and the testimony of the church. So let's reconcile quickly and let's love one another and let's get over ourselves and get on with the gospel. Verse 14 sums it up. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desire. That's what I pray you will say to your soul tomorrow morning. That you would say, I put on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm gonna make no provision for the flesh. What I love about where we are right now is that I used to read that verse and even counsel with that verse, and it applies individually. It certainly does individually, but it's not just about individuals. It's about the community. It's about all of us together. I'm gonna put on the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm gonna make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires because at the end of the day, Walking in love and walking in the light is central to the mission of the gospel in the world. It means that we orient our lives away from the things that provide fuel for the anti-God, anti-righteousness mindset that's embedded in our culture and even still partially embedded inside the hearts of those who name the name of Christ. And instead, the idea is that we have set our moral sights, we've set our moral GPS towards becoming like Jesus, and therefore we turn left and right and love and light and love and light, and we make all kinds of decisions that lead us to embracing the beauty of God's grace in Christ. It means that if you boil down the Christian life, you know what it's essentially about? It's about people who've been to the top. They've seen the vision. The vision is God is for me, he's not against me. The vision is there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The vision is neither height nor depth nor any creation, anything in all of creation can separate me from the love of Christ, that I'm more than conqueror through him who loved me. That's the vision of who I am in Jesus. He has transformed me and changed me and made me into the man that I am today. And because of that, I can walk down the mountain and go into the flatlands and love people and be kind and compassionate and pour grace into hurting people. And when needed, draw a line in the sand and say, you know, I love you, but I can't do that. And you can fire me, you can take away my career, you can stop being my friend, I hope you won't. You can ridicule me and do whatever you want, but at the end of the day, I'm not crossing that line, but you know I love you, and you know I've tried to walk in righteousness, and that person will have to stand before Christ and give an account for the fact that they either persecuted or maligned or harassed somebody who lived in the light and walked in love. Friends, remember, putting on Christ is not just something we need to do for us. We need to do it because it's right and because we need you, I need you, this church needs you, and this world needs you to be godly. So walk in love. Walk in the light for the glory of the one from whom all things come, through whom all things happen, and to whom all glory belongs. To him, to Christ, be our lives, our godliness, and our love. Let's pray.
Father, we, we ask you in the midst of any number of difficult decisions that are so complicated, and I've heard so many in the last month, it makes my head spin, that you'd help us to know what is the Christ-like and loving thing as defined by the Bible to do here. And help us to build such great accounts with people that when our worldviews collide, that it will be inarguable that we have loved them and that we are the kind of people who, because of your grace, are trying to do what's right. And so I pray that you would create an army of people who have the mind of Christ, who know what it means that you're for us and not against us, and then who live lives that are reflected, or reflective, rather, of this beautiful God-centered vision. Forgive us for the ways that we've failed, and we still will, and we're grateful that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all of our sins, and we ask for your help. You might help us to know how to live in a way that's reflective of your love and also reflected in what it means to put on Christ and make no provision for the flesh. Now church, before I pray and close, I wanna give you a moment to think and pray about what is it that God is saying to you? Some of you maybe even pray today, God, would you give me an opportunity to pour out love to people around me? Some of you need to, may need to pray and repent of things that do not fit with putting on Christ, but instead fit with the deeds of the flesh. Afterwards, there'll be people up here at the front who'd love to pray for you about anything going on in your life. But just for a moment, let's just take some time to think and reflect and pray about what God is saying to us today by his spirit through his word. Father, help us now as we leave this sanctuary that we might be the kind of people who have met with you and are changed. If we believe that our God, if our King is alive, that he's not dead, then what kind of people would you have us to be this week? Give us wisdom, give us understanding, give us grace to be your kind of people. And thank you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that you are for us and not against us. Let me pray this in Jesus' name, amen.